page 30 and 31. We'll be there in just, just a second. Uh, I was curious how you would feel if some of your most unfiltered feelings and thoughts were made public. Not the ones that you might have the confidence to type up on social media, the ones that you wouldn't want anybody to see. Now, hopefully this doesn't happen to you without permission, but it did happen to a man that you might have heard of. Uh, his name is C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've read any of his books or, or heard about him. Uh, you probably at least have heard of some of his books. Have you ever heard of the, the series, The Chronicles of Narnia? Or maybe at least seen the movies growing up. Uh, that's C.S. Lewis. He also wrote many other books that have stood the test of time, like Mere Christianity and, and Great Divorce. I really encourage you to read C.S. Lewis if you haven't. And whether or not you have read anything by him, I can almost guarantee that you have been impacted by his influence. Because this man, though he died in 1963, he has helped shape culture and Christian culture uh, by his writing and thinking. So you have probably been impacted by him, even if you've never heard his name. But of all that he wrote, one of his most popular books, he never intended to be attached to his name. It's this book called A Grief Observed, and it's the journal that he kept after cancer took his wife. Now, this raw account, it twists and turns with honesty as he grapples with God while he grieves the death of his bride. Now, he, he did publish it, actually, but he published it under a different name because he thought it would at least benefit some people, but he didn't want it to be associated with him specifically. And when you read it, you can understand why. This man with such influence and reputation, you get to see the, the turmoil of grief through this book. Let me just read a, a snapshot, and I think you'll understand why he wanted to publish it under a different name. He says this in the middle of his wrestling. He says, meanwhile, where is God? Turn to him with gratitude and praise, and you will be welcomed in with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? That's honesty. And I think even if I, as I read that, I think some of you actually feel what he feels. But you can also understand why he would want to maybe distance himself from all these other books that he's written, all the other ways that he's shaped culture. Now, I don't want to assume anything about our brother, C.S. Lewis. I don't know exactly why he didn't publish it under his name. I haven't actually been able to find a clear answer uh, with Google's help, unfortunately. But you can understand why he might have created some distance, why he didn't want to publish that for everyone to read. I mean, would you want people to read your journal? Probably not. And I think we're tempted to do the very same thing. That uh, uh, whether it's the internal pressure that we feel, whether it's the, the fear or shame or insecurity or the external pressure we face in this, this culture of wanting to be polished and even the, the Christian culture pressure that we think just the positive side of ourselves is what needs to be made public. And, and I think we do the same thing with God. There is this um, 
expectation, especially when you suffer, especially when you experience confusion and unanswered questions about the perplexities and pain of life, there is this assumption and this pressure that the good and faithful Christian should just smile and trust God. In other words, we are tempted to live and pray in a way that pretends that everything is okay. My goal this morning is to show you from the scriptures that strong faith is brutally honest about the hardships of life. Strong faith is honest about heartache. You can pray without pretending. You can publish, not actually publish if you don't want to, but you can be public about how hard life is. And it's actually through this honesty that God pulls us toward hope. God invites it and he encourages it. Some of the most honest prayers in history are in the Bible and have been published by God. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those prayers. Uh, before we, we dive in, I wanted to let you know that what we're looking at this morning is not just an academic exercise for me. This isn't just like a, a theological concept or, or some principles that, that I want to offer you. Praying without pretending has been my lifeline. It is what has uh, kept me clinging to Jesus Christ. If I could just give you a brief snapshot, in just a couple weeks, my wife and I will celebrate the five-year anniversary of our firstborn dying. And a year and a half after that, we will remember the loss of our second baby, who we lost through miscarriage. In two years, we lost our first two babies. Eli would have been five on November 8th, and we celebrate Rose's anniversary in May. And I have been angry. I've been sad, I've been confused, I've been paralyzed, I've been afraid, I've been numb. The whole spectrum of emotion that you can experience in the waves of grief. And while some uh, of the edges of my grief have smoothed over time and, and my faith has been established because of Jesus Christ, the only way that I have navigated and continue to navigate life with the absence of two children in my home is because of honest prayer. That is what has clung me to hope in the gospel. And that's the way that Jesus has held on to me. And I would imagine because you signed up for this breakout that many of you are not coming here because you, know, you are theologically interested or you just want to learn some more information. I know that in a room this size, you are facing burdens. Just looking into your eyes and seeing your shoulders, you are weighed down by the brokenness of life. And my hope this morning as we read a very honest prayer is that you too will see this invitation that God offers hope through honesty. You can pray without pretending. So let me, let me pray before we dive in and then we're gonna, we're gonna read the passage in page 30. God, you created all things by the power of your word. When you speak, things happen. And as we hear your words right now, even such honest prayers, I ask that you would breathe new life into our souls. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. So we're gonna read 
Psalm 44. And just to give you a little bit of a context, what we're going to be reading is it's this concept of lament. It is uh, uh, the honest wrestling of God's people. And in the book of Psalms, maybe you have, you know, a favorite Psalm, you've memorized Psalm 23, you have a coffee mug with Psalm 46, uh, be still and know that I'm God. Maybe you have a poster or it's on your phone or your Instagram. There's a lot of Psalms for every occasion. The largest category of Psalms, which is the prayers that God has given his people is lament. So this is the most popular type of Psalm, (laughs) the praying without pretending and honesty. So we're going to first just read the first eight verses to give a brief little context of of who these people are who are writing this. And then we'll move on to the second half. So start with me. Psalm 44, we're going to read verses one through eight. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your right arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Uh, this, this first point that is just gonna be very brief. I wanted you to notice that this prayer which is going to take a turn in the second half, was written by strong people of faith. Maybe you even heard the confidence that was exuding in this psalm. You're like, this, isn't, this doesn't really seem like a lament psalm. Well, it's, it's going to get there. But it starts off with a very uh, confident tone. I mean, look at the first uh, verses one through three, what they have heard. We have heard with our ears, verse one, in the days of old. Uh, verse two, talking about the people whom you set free. And verse three, kind of what we just talked about in the main session, you delighted in them. Uh, What the the sons of Korah, this is like the popular worship band of the day. What they're saying is uh, we have been steeped in the stories of God's faithfulness. They've attended conferences. They've gone to breakouts. They've gone to Bible studies. They've read books and memorized passages about the deliverance of God. They have listened Unlike Simon Peter, they haven't been uninterested. They've they've been fully leaning in and interested in the things of God. They've been taking notes. (laughs) But their knowledge of God's faithfulness is not just intellectual. They've experienced it personally. Do you notice that shift in in verses 4 through 8? Verse 4, you are my king. Verse 5, through you we push down our foes. Uh, Verse 7, you have saved us from our foes. And in verse eight, in God, we have boasted continually. You see, this Psalm was written by strong believers. Uh, They know God's faithfulness. They've, They've listened and believed the stories and heard the truth and put it into practice. Now, why is this important to know? This is just a brief stop in the first half because we're about to read the second half. And if you only read the second half, you would think that this prayer was written by immature or weak believers, uh, believers who haven't truly understood the faithfulness of God. 
But this first half shows us very, very clearly they have heard and they have experienced and they trust and believe in the faithfulness of God. These are strong believers. And this whole Psalm shows us that strong people of faith, that's your first point. We're going to move on to our second point, struggle with God in prayer. Let's read the second half and I want you to buckle up because this gets even more honest than what I just read from C.S. Lewis's journal. So pay attention to the honesty and how they pray without pretending, starting in verse nine. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It is an honest prayer. And if you didn't know the first half, you would maybe question the belief of these people. But this passage shows us that strong people of faith struggle with God in prayer. And before we, we dive into to what this can look like, I just want to let you know, we did hand out some, some cards. If we have time, Lord willing, we're going to do some Q&A afterwards. So if you have questions, because this is some, some heavy stuff, feel free to write it down and hopefully we can talk about it afterwards. But let's move on into this, this struggle with God in prayer. I want you to notice uh, the four rhythms of lament that we see. My hope is that you will be able to use these four rhythms in your own prayer life. And the first rhythm is explained pain. Getting honest with God, praying without pretending begins with explaining the pain that you feel. Notice how the author describes his distress. Do you pick up on that? Verse nine, they are rejected and disgraced. Verse 10, uh, those who, ha who hate us have gotten spoil. Verse 11, you've made us sheep for slaughter. We are scattered among the nations. Verse 13, the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. Verse 15 and 16, I mean, think about this in contrast to what we just talked about in the main session. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. I want you to consider all the complicated components of the suffering that we see here. 
There's relational pain. There's physical pain. There's mental, spiritual, and emotional pain. In other words, suffering is complex. And the scriptures speak to the complexity of what you face. What you are going through right now and the hardships you will encounter in this life are complicated. It's messy. And scripture invites you, God invites you to dive into that mess and explain the pain that you feel. Now, a lot of this explanation is pretty straightforward. You know, they feel hated. They feel broken. They feel shamed. They feel rejected. They're simply telling it how it is. How amazing is that? The scriptures invite us to just tell it how it is, but it, it takes it a step further. Did you pick up on how creative some of their explanations are? I mean, the image, verse 11 and verse 22, think about what's being communicated. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter. He says it again, verse 22, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I mean, think about how vivid and visceral that is. An innocent, helpless animal being violently killed. Or uh, verse 14, we are a laughing stock among the peoples. They're saying, we're the butt of the joke around the world. Talk about shame and loneliness. Or again, verse 25, this is incredibly uh, creative and descriptive. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. We are in such pain that we are lying down and unable to get up because our stomachs can't let go of the dirt. I want you to imagine hearing this type of language in prayer after a Bible study or before a meal. Wouldn't you feel awkward? I mean, if, if someone else was praying like that, wouldn't you be like, that seems like an exaggeration. Like that can't be actually what's going on. And yet this prayer of quote unquote exaggerated feelings is a prayer that God gave to his people to repeat. In other words, the, the Lord welcomes things that sometimes we might deem as unwelcome or inappropriate. This prayer that's been approved by God welcomes us to think deeply about how deeply we are hurt. And I, I want to point out one more thing about the explained pain do you notice how much of this prayer is explanation? I mean, over a half of this prayer is spent describing things to God. Now, again, this is very different than how we're used to praying, I think. And there are a lot of resources, really good resources out there, and even good resources, hopefully out there on the book table, that will help you learn how to pray better. Maybe you've even heard of the acronym uh, ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, all of those things are, are really good. But in, in my experience, there aren't a lot of uh, resources out there that simply say, spend a lot of time describing your pain to God. And I think the reason is, is it's a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. Because we think God already knows everything. And that's true. <laughs> But just because he knows everything doesn't mean that there's not a goodness and a health to explaining how we really feel. And verse 21 even says, God knows the secrets of the heart. Well, if that's true, why did you spend half of this psalm explaining things to God? 
even though God knows the secrets of your heart, he still invites you to put your hurts into words. I remember a powerful experience that I had uh, with this very uh, reality. It was after our son Eli died. And uh, we knew that it would be good to get grief counseling, to, to, to sit with people who, who were experienced in grief. And I sit down with my counselor and he started the session with four words. Tell me about Eli. <coughs> my counselor simply invited me to explain my pain, to tell him about my son who I loved and was devastated over to tell him about my sorrow. And he just sat and listened. Good counseling gets their notes from a good God. That is not a, a recent discovery. Talk therapy, that's what's happening in the Psalms. The God of the universe welcomes you to talk about your pain. And he's willing to sit down and listen. And he says, what you're feeling, tell me about it. It's okay to pray without pretending. You don't have to pretend like you're okay. You don't have to sugar things. As you struggle with God in prayer, explain your pain. The second thing that uh, praying without pretending involves is expressed protest. Now that might seem like a strong word, but I think it's totally accurate in describing what's happening here in Psalm 44 and other lament Psalms. We've already taken a, a, a note of a lot of the pain in this passage, but I want you to glance back at verses nine through 14. And all you have to do is look at the first word of every verse. Other than nine, that starts with but, but the second word there, and then 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you, 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 you. God, you have done these things. God, you have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for a slaughter. You have sold your people. You have made us the taunt. You have made us a byword. Doesn't this feel a little accusatory? I've heard one pastor say that it's less of a conversation and it feels more like an interrogation, which that's, that really is how it feels. I mean, this morning we sang, you made us your own. And Psalm 44 says, you have rejected us. There's a song uh, that says, you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper. This Psalm says, you've made us the taunt of our neighbors. This is very strong language. And the psalmist is boldly going where few dare to venture because he acknowledges that God does indeed have power over all things. But that means that God is allowing it to happen. And that requires a lot more breakout sessions to unpack and uncover. But that doesn't mean that we just need to be silent and passive about how that makes us feel. This psalmist admits that it does not sit well with him. Now, you might be tempted to think that God has allowed this suffering because, well, they, maybe they deserve it. But did you notice in verse 17 and 18? Verse 17, all this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you and we have uh, not been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not departed from your way. In other words, it wasn't their fault. They're innocent. That doesn't mean they're sinless, but it does mean that there's nothing in particular that they've done to cause their pain. And so they're, they're, they're turning to the Lord 
They've listened to his promises and they're saying, God, what are you doing? And that's exactly where they go. Uh, They're trying to reconcile God's promises with their pain and they ask really tough questions. You notice how this prayer starts to uh, come down. It's with a bunch of questions. Verse 23, why are you sleeping? Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction? Now, isn't it true that when suffering comes, our prayers really boil down to that one word. Why? And this psalmist is taking it a step further. Look at the language of those questions. Why are you sleeping? In other words, it feels like God is napping. Like we're suffering over here and God, you're, you're just taking a snooze. Why do you forget? Well, God knows all things, but it feels like he is forgetting them in this moment. And this is what lament invites you to. This is what the God of the Bible invites you into. It's giving words to those protests in prayer. These believers are saying, God, you've allowed this and we don't like it. And in case you're wondering again, how appropriate this is, the prayer of Jesus on the cross quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus himself practiced and therefore authorizes this sort of praying to express your protest. And I know that many of you have experienced what feels like a disconnect between God's promises and your pain. Or perhaps you've, you've witnessed injustice or disaster, or you just read your headlines and you wonder, God, what are you doing? But then you think, well, who am I to protest this situation to a holy and all-knowing God? Who are we to complain to an infinite creator? And that's exactly what our conclusion would be if it weren't for the Bible. Because God invites you to ask him your difficult questions. So here's a, a quick formula that will at least give you some language to try doing this. God you promised, fill in the blank. But it feels like, fill in the blank. God, you promised this, but it feels like this. And I I just want to let you know why I think, from what I can tell from the scriptures, why the Lord would invite us into this. I mean, on the one hand, it just shows just how merciful our God is that he would allow his people to even ask questions of his mercy. But the other thing is, is God invites you into a relationship, into a healthy relationship. And believe it or not, healthy relationships deal with conflict. Now, I know that might be mind-blowing, but a healthy relationship is not void of conflict (laughs) because a relationship void of conflict isn't really a good relationship. It means you don't know each other well enough. But of all the ways that we do conflict poorly, maybe you're passive aggressive, maybe you're overly aggressive. Maybe you sweep things under the rug and pretend like everything's okay. There's a lot of unhealthy ways to deal with conflict, but the strongest relationships, people tell how they feel, especially when they've been hurt by the other person. And how amazing is it that God invites you to tell him how you feel when it feels like he has hurt you? 
and he's confusing you. You can bring him your difficult questions, your honest complaints. You can express your protests to the Lord. The third thing is earnest petition. So explaining our pain, expressing our protests, it moves us into petitions to ask the Lord to do something about our situation. I want you to notice all the different petitions. Uh, three of them come up in verse 23. Awake, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Then again, in verse 26, there's three more. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Do you notice there's still tension in those requests? I mean, asking God to wake up. So this, the psalmist is still working things out with the Lord, even as he asks for his help. He still knows that only God can truly help. And yet he's relying on him, even as he wrestles with him. And I, I think petition seems to be the aspect of lament that probably comes most naturally to us. Uh, we often ask God for help. We ask him for comfort. But I think sometimes we can feel guilty for asking God to change our circumstances. I mean, you've probably heard, and if not, you'll hear it right now, that we are called to learn contentment in any situation, to give thanks in all circumstances. But we can take those and we can misapply those to think that, well, we just need to passively accept anything that comes our way. But Jesus himself told us to ask. He, he told us to pray with persistence. Jesus himself asked for another way out in the garden of Gethsemane. You are allowed to dislike your difficulties. And God invites your impassioned pleas for him to ease or erase your sorrow according to his will. And there are many things that you can ask for. Just even in this passage, you can ask him to help, to listen, to save, to heal. I mean, for me, many petitions really boil down to one, especially when we were in the midst of losing our son. Do something. God, please just do something. You're invited to make earnest petitions. And I just want you to know that there will be times when God doesn't answer your request. And that's really hard. And this actually invites you to go back and explain your pain and express your protest over those unanswered prayers. God invites you to make earnest petitions when you're in pain. And finally, the fourth rhythm of honest prayer of praying without pretending is eventual praise. I want you to notice something surprising about this Psalm that can be easily overlooked. It doesn't resolve. The situation doesn't change. And really, neither does the tone. Actually, the tone kind of seems to get worse as the prayer goes on. And it just kind of <laughs> lingers. And this is true of a lot of lament psalms. Like you, if you pay close attention, many lament psalms don't actually resolve or, or even end on a hopeful tone. But psalm 39 actually ends, uh, depart from me, God, so I can smile again. Psalm 88, the last word of the psalm is darkness. <laughs> My closest companions have become darkness. So, so many laments don't resolve. While at the same time, there are many laments that do result 
in praise. And so here's the tension that lament uh, offers us is it allows you to linger when things haven't resolved, but it also promises to point you in the direction of hope and joy. Now, for some of you, the unresolved nature of this, I hope is liberating to you. That you don't have to force resolve onto your circumstances. And you don't have to fake happiness before it's occurred. It's okay to linger, to be sad, and to wait as the Lord meets you in your sorrow. For the others of you, this is really scary. You hate waiting. Lingering too much on sorrow is really, really scary. But lament invites bravery to sit in the darkness and wait for the Lord. And lament and God himself does promise that praise will eventually return. You see, lament puts you on the path towards praise. If you read the Psalms as a whole, I mentioned that uh, the Psalms are, uh, the largest category are lament Psalms. And, and in the beginning and in the middle of the book, that's where they're most concentrated. But then at the end of the Psalms, there's more and more praise that occurs. And that's, that's not an accident. It wasn't just these random set of music or songs and prayers that just got thrown together. There's a there's a reason that they've been put together in that way. And it, it holds out this promise for sufferers that praise may not be a current reality, but the day is coming when it is. And as you uh, press into the Lord with your deepest pains and most difficult questions, he is patient with you and he graciously ushers you toward praise. Uh, for me, it didn't happen until at least a year and a half after Eli died. And if I could be honest with you, it took years before I could sing again. Not even sing without emotion. I mean, literally sing worship songs. It took years for that to happen again. And it's amazing and mind-blowing that God is patient with us in those situations. That he'll wait for you. That he's listening and he's okay if your prayers don't resolve. And he also will move you towards hope and praise as you're honest with him in prayer. And what's an amazing thing about this psalm and all the psalms, you might have overlooked how this psalm starts. Not verse one, look up above verse one. To the choir master. This is a worship song. This was on the screen the Israelite conferences. <laughs> Can you imagine singing a song like this? I mean, this devastating prayer that doesn't resolve became a worship song. And the Psalms as a whole, the Hebrew word Psalm means praises. A third of those praises are laments. In other words, lament and praying without pretending and being honest with God isn't something you need to do before you can worship. It's worship. It, in a mind-blowing reality, being honest with God, something like this praises the name of the God of the universe. And so please, if you hear anything this morning, don't walk out of these doors feeling ashamed or embarrassed or insecure about the pain that you feel. Because if 
God would publish a prayer like Psalm 44, he's certainly going to welcome the prayers that you have in your sorrow. And as you are honest with him in the most painful and perplexing situations, as you engage and express your sorrow, just like the movement of the Psalms, he will move your heart towards praise, even if it takes days, weeks, months, or years. Strong people of faith struggle with God through prayer. Explain your pain, express your protests, make your earnest petitions and allow your laments to turn you towards eventual praise. Now, I want to give you, in addition to those four things, please put those into practice. And here's just some, some ideas of how you can do that. The first, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is to not rush. Do not rush the process. Oh man, how hard is that in our culture? Not just American culture, but Christian culture. We want progress. Don't rush. God is not rushing you. And, and also along with the, the patience, this process isn't linear. Like it's not just these four steps. Like, okay, I've explained my pain and my protests. And oh, now I'm going to praise. Like this is messy. You even notice we didn't go in order in Psalm 44. It ends on petition. So uh, this is not a linear process. These are just different uh, rhythms and components that you can incorporate in your prayer. The other thing I'd encourage you guys to do is to write it down. We have this prayer because the sons of Korah wrote it down. And there, there is something about writing down your thoughts and feelings uh, that allow you to think and to process and even to see it on paper and even to get more creative with the, the imagery that you use. So, so write it down. Put your pen to paper as you pray in pain. The third thing I'd encourage you guys to do is to get away. Not out of here, not for me, but get some time alone to, to process your deepest hurts. For me, it was renting out a cabin at a conference center and I would just go in the middle of the woods and literally bombard heaven with my heartache. Get away, get alone so that you can have time and space to process your pain. And the last thing I'd invite you guys to do is to involve other people. This was a corporate prayer, not just a son of Korah, the sons of Korah. And so I would, I would encourage you and urge you to not isolate yourself in your suffering. It's already isolating enough as it is. And I know this is risky. I've been hurt by opening up to people. I, mean, I have a long list <laughs> that I could, I could share with you, but I also have a long list of people who love us deeply and have listened and sat with us in our pain. And there's people at this conference who would love to do that with you. People on your campus, people in your churches. So don't rush, write it down, get away and involve others. Now, uh, we have about five minutes. That's not a ton of time, but I did want to give some time for some Q&A. Here's what I would ask. If you have a question, I'd invite you to write it down. If you don't have a question, turn to the person next to you and just talk about this one question. Which one of these four aspects seem hardest for you. And in a couple minutes, I'm just going to take some, some questions and try to get through at least one or two of them. So write a question down or talk about what was one of the hardest aspects out of these four for you. And then we're going to talk real quick. Anyone got questions? Did you write down?
All right, for the sake of time, man, I do not want to cut off conversation. But there's some there's a few really good questions that I think would be really helpful to answer. And then afterwards, you talk as long as you want. Um, so so here's one one question. How can you honestly pray to God with and for someone who does not trust or believe in God? Oh, man, that's a good question. And actually, what I would do is I would incorporate these four rhythms as you pray for that person. There's actually a lot of prayers in the Bible that do the very same thing. Um, the beginning of Romans 9, Paul actually talks about unceasing anguish that he has in his heart on behalf of people who don't know Jesus. And so what I've seen, um, Paul is one, Jesus is one. He laments over Jerusalem. Uh, the prophets do, prophets do this a lot. Um, Nehemiah does this in chapter one. They lament over the brokenness that other people are experiencing. And I think that's actually a great question because we do one of two things. Either we're silent and don't know how to respond to people's suffering or we kind of get into tr trouble trying to fix their problems. But lament actually gives you a third option to listen to what they're going through and turn that into a lament on their behalf. That's a great question. Uh, another question that came in is how do we handle the fear of suffering that comes from our anxiety? This is not me trying to be cheeky, <laughs> but I would say to, to lament over that as well. Um, and man, just to get into the heart of what's going on there, it's okay to be afraid of suffering. Do you know that Jesus was so anxious in the garden of Gethsemane that he sweat blood? If Jesus, the God of the universe in human flesh was so anxious to the point of physical things happening in and outside of his body, it's okay that you feel fear and anxiety. And so on the one hand, I would encourage you to, to pray, to, to lean into even some of those complicated, complex aspects, but to involve other people as well. And then the last question, and this is a really, really good one, and I can really relate to this. How can you separate God from the church when the church is the cause of your pain? Yeah. I know the church is human and God himself didn't hurt me, but it's still very hard to separate them and trust God with laments. I have been there. Uh, and just so I can practice what I'm preaching and be real with you guys, my wife and I stopped going to church for a, a pretty decent amount of time. And we were wrestling with God, but it was also because we didn't actually find that our wrestling had a place in the churches around us. Like we wanted to do Psalm 44 and it just wasn't happening. And so church was really, really hard. We had a, we had a, a local body of believers who we were worshiping with and serving with, but this this reality of, of church being a hurtful place, this is exactly why I have this breakout session and why I wrote a book on this, because I want the church to be more hospitable to heartache. And I also think that if you have been hurt by people in the church, you're not alone. There's a lot of Psalms, actually, that are about being hurt by the people of God. Like David. David was hurt by his own family members who claimed to be followers of God. Um, another book is uh, Habakkuk. He's grieving the injustice that his people are doing. And so if this is you, and I could tell by the response that many of you might feel this way, you're not alone. Um, 
keep talking about it, keep working through it with the Lord and with other people. And if I would be so bold as to commission you to not separate yourself from God's people long-term, but actually as you work through some of the healing and pain and trauma, that you can actually be an ambassador for change to help see that it doesn't happen anymore. The reality is hurt people hurt people. And we're all hurt. And it doesn't excuse the hurt that you've experienced. But lament and the gospel can turn hurt people into helping people. And you really can be. That's why I'm passionate about you guys. You're the next generation. You can be conduits for change in the church so that prayers like this are more normal. (laughs) And even the pain that we cause each other makes it into our prayers as we lament. Those are three questions. I'm going to close this in prayer, and I just have one thing to, to say to you afterwards. Let's pray. God, in this room alone, there's a a list that is too long to even begin explaining the pain that we feel. I know that there's emotional, relational, physical, spiritual pain that exists in this room and in this hotel and on our campuses. And God, would you continue listening as we describe our pain to you? Help us to have the boldness to put our words into, or put our hurts into words. And God, I ask, why? Why do you allow this? How long must we suffer before you make all things new? And even as we ask that, thank you for sending your son who would ask similar questions and not talk to us, but stand alongside us with his own protests. Lord, I ask in the midst of all the pain and protests that you would do something, that you would help, that you would wake up and rouse yourself, that you would save us for the sake of your steadfast love. And Lord, some of us are ready to praise you, but maybe tepidly. Others of us aren't ready to go there just yet. Would you be patient with us in the process and bring other people to allow us to do all these things and wait with us towards the praise that will come eventually. In your son's name we pray, amen.